Well, our passage today, again, continues in the story of Noah's Ark, and today is very much the fresh start part of Noah. Last week, we saw kind of the gruesomeness of the flood, that it was wiping away the wickedness of everything, but today we're talking about a fresh start. It reminds me of when my brothers and I would play video games as kids, and we'd play you know, basketball or football video games against one another, and we'd have what we often call the reset game. And that was when, on the very first play, your brother scored a touchdown or something else really big against you. And you just ran over in frustrated anger and hit the restart button and said, oh, that never happened. And you just wanted to start over. You wanted a fresh start to clean the slate. Sometimes we wish we could do that with the Penguins or Steelers or just about anybody to just say, all right, let's, let's try that again. We don't want that to happen. We all like fresh starts. You know, we are coming to the end of a school year, and the promise of the next school year promises a fresh start. Maybe we're going to high school for the first time, to college, or it's just a new grade, a chance to not start the year with a bad first quarter, perhaps. Maybe we want the fresh start for uh, a new harvest. Maybe we want the fresh start at a new job. We all desire sometimes fresh starts. Well, if Noah's Ark is a fresh start, there is a fundamental flaw to the freshness of the start. And that is what caused all the problems originally on the earth is trapped inside that ark. You see, of the eight people inside Noah's Ark, all of them are sinners. And sin is what led to the corruption on the earth. And so we have to look at our passage today and see how can this be a fresh start? If God is wiping everything away, how is it even possible for us to have this kind of a fresh start? So if you would, open your Bibles with me today. We're going to continue our study in Genesis. We are halfway through the flood story, and so we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, kind of a previously on Genesis, we have uh, water covering the entire earth, And an ark that I'm sure seemed very large on dry land now seems very small in an earth covered with water. And so we pick up in verse 8 with the ark on the water after the flood. And I'll be reading beginning in verse 8, chapter 1 through verse 17 of chapter 9. Hear the word of the Lord. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. 
he waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you 
and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you very much that you have spoken to us, that you have preserved your word for us, that we can trust it. We thank you that your word is living and active and just as powerful as when you speak directly. Your word speaks in power and wisdom and in truth. And so, Lord, speak to us today. Speak to us with the power of your word and your spirit, and so change us. Change our hearts to be in line with your word, to know the truths of your word, to know your goodness from the word, your just judgment against sin, so that our hearts would be turned toward you, knowing your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we see in our passage here is there is a fresh start. Noah and his crew get off the boat. But the start is not completely fresh. There is sin. There is still the remnants of the flood. That there is sin in their hearts and there is brokenness in the world. So how can we live faithfully in this fresh start? Well, our passage shows us things related to our relationship to God, our relationship to others, and also our relationship to the entire natural world. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Chapter 8, after the judgment of the flood, begins with a reassuring word. It says, but God remembered Noah and everything on the ark. That Noah's salvation was not yet complete. He's rocking on that boat for weeks and months. And probably like, okay, it's still wet. Waiting for God's promise to come true. Because the earth was covered with water. It was unfit for life. They were not meant to be on the ark forever. God had to complete his promised salvation. And so we read that God remembers Noah. It doesn't mean that God was sleeping and was startled out of sleep like, Noah, like in Home Alone when they realize, Kevin, where is he? He knew where Noah was. He remembered now is the time to fulfill the promise. Now it is time to act on what I promised to do. And so God sends a strong wind. He shuts up the waters, and the waters begin to recede. There are echoes of the very beginning when in Genesis 1-2, it says the earth was covered with water and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. The word for spirit is the same word for wind. So here again, we see a spirit, a wind, going over the waters and bringing forth the earth, a new creation. Noah was clearly very excited about this. If you look at verses 3 through 17, we see Noah's eager fulfillment, awaiting this fulfillment. Again and again, exact dates are recorded as if Noah is in there with all of the smells, putting the tally marks like, okay, today something happened. Today something happened. The day that the boat stopped on the mountain, the day they could see something, the day they sent this thing out and that thing out, he knows those days. Noah is eagerly awaiting the day when they get to leave the ark and God's promise is complete. But even Noah, 
when he sees the mountains, when he sends out the birds, when he looks with his own eyes and sees, hey, the earth is dry, Noah waits. Noah waits until God says, get out. Everything was dry, it was ready to go, and yet Noah, in his silent obedience, waited for God, knowing that God is the one who saved him. He remembered, wait, I should probably listen to God and not just step out quite yet. And he waited. Salvation was complete when God said it was. Reminiscent of Jesus on the cross as he's about to die, crying out, It is finished. That all that is necessary is done. And so we read verses 17 through 19 where God commands Noah to go out of the ark and he goes out of the ark. And I think we can understand a little bit of how they felt. If you've ever been on a long trip, a long trip in the car or on the plane and you finally arrive at your destination. And you get out, and there's that big sigh of relief. You stretch. You have felt bottled up for so long. What do we do? We get so excited. We explore where we're going, if it's our final destination, or we just kiss our home like, thank you, I am home. We run to the bathroom. We tell someone else, get away from me. I don't want to be around you anymore. That was too long together. Last year, driving to vacation in the Outer Banks, our lovely family of four was taking a 12-hour car ride, death trip, car ride. (laughs) And the last 90 minutes were in creeping traffic at like two miles an hour with two screaming children in the back seat. And upon arriving at our destination, the only thing any of the four of us thought was, I never want to see either of you again, (laughs) any of you. Just get out, get away. And so we can understand a little bit about finally getting out And so Noah and the animals and his family have been on the ark for just over a year when you add up all the dates. 370 days about on that ark with all them animals. And so thinking of our experiences of when we get out of that, we run to the bathroom, we tell everyone to get away. What does Noah do? What is the first thing out of the ark that Noah does? It says... That just as God remembered Noah, Noah remembered God. That Noah builds an altar and worships God by offering animal sacrifices. Now before you worry that this is where our extinct animals went, chapter 7 said that Noah brought seven pairs of the clean animals and birds. So that's why he's got some to spare. That God provides what is necessary for his worship. And so we see from this sacrifice that this was the right response from Noah, that God is very pleased with this smell that the newly remade earth has begun in a new way with worship. That Noah worships the God who remembers him, who saved him, who cared for him. The sacrifices are a way for Noah to show that he owes everything to God. That his life would be as good as dead, as dead as those sacrifices, if God had not saved him. And so Noah worships God because of what God had done for him. The very first thing Noah does is to give thanks to the God who saved him. Now, like Noah, our worship of God is based not just on who God is, that he's a really great God. It's also based on what he's done for us. 
And so as you think through our worship services, kind of like Miss Andy had the kids think about through the worship services, we do not, thankfully, sacrifice animals in here. Instead, we sacrifice in other ways. Our reading from Hebrews 13, 15 showed that the worship is the fruit of our lips, the sacrifices of praise we sing, and our songs focus on these things, who God is and what he has done for us. We sing about his greatness, his glory, his majesty, and the holiness of God. That's who he is. But we also sing about his grace and mercy, his forgiveness towards us in Jesus Christ. That's what he has done for us. It shows us that is our worship. Our right response is to remember God because he remembers us. That though he is great and mighty, he does great things for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we remember in our worship who God is and what he has done. But Hebrews goes on to say that our worship is not limited to singing, as Andrea was saying as well. Verse 16 went on to say, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Pleasing sacrifices sounds a whole lot like worship, like offerings, like what Noah did, sacrificing and God smelling the pleasing aroma. And so, though our worship is primarily focused on our relationship to God, it also works itself out in how we care for one another around us. And that's what we see at the beginning of chapter 9 in verses 1 through 7, how we relate to one another And again, we hear echoes of Genesis 1 as we get commands that were very similar to those given to Adam and Eve. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Sounds very familiar. That despite the rebellion, the sin, the wickedness of man, God says your life will continue. The original, you will surely die, has been replaced, covered in grace with continue to live. And not just the life of anything, but the life of God's image bearers. Despite the wickedness of man, chapter 9, verse 6 says again that men and women are made in the image of God. Sin has certainly tarnished the image of God, but it is not removed. It is not extinguished. It is not revoked. It remains. And so if you've ever looked in a broken mirror, you see yourself there. You see the image, but it's... It's messed up. Same way if you ever go to a carnival and you get the crazy mirrors. You look at yourself, you're like, yeah, that's, whoa, yeah, okay. And you try and find where you are to find the right image, and yet it's distorted. Well, in the same way, we retain the image of God, and yet sin has distorted it. There's a brokenness to the image of God in our lives now. But what the passage says is the image remains regardless of how warped and distorted and broken it seems. And because all people are made in the image of God, Noah and his sons are commanded to value every human life. That if each person is made in the image of God, that we all have a divine dignity. And yet this passage realizes that though we are dignified image bearers, it can be really hard to value the lives of other people. Because people are still sinners prone to violence and wickedness. I mean, the mention of us being made in the image of God is found in a passage that describes how you're supposed to punish 
murderers. So clearly it understands that the image of God is there, but yeah, there's some problems if we're having to worry about murder again. And so in this rebirth, this new creation after the flood, humans are still sinners, and that doesn't surprise any of us. That's our experience. We've all been hurt by other people on this world. We've all hurt other people on this world. We've all experienced the brokenness of this world caused by others and ourselves. And we know how difficult it is to value and care about the lives of other people, especially when they hurt us or when they harm others. We see this attitude in our Old Testament reading from Jonah 3 and 4. Jonah didn't resist going to Nineveh because he was worried he was going to get mugged or murdered. Jonah tells God, I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I didn't want you to save them. They are bad people and they deserve judgment. He didn't want God to show them mercy, and yet he did. And so Jonah leaves the city, sits up on a hill, hoping God will judge them still, and he's pouting. He is complaining to God, and hear the words of his complaint. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like, it is really hard to say that in a mean way, that God is gracious, merciful, and abounding in love. Yet Jonah says it in a mean way. He's like, I knew you would be nice to them. How dare you, God? Like Jonah, we can wish God's judgment on other people that we consider wicked on people that hurt us and hurt the world. Maybe it's other nations or groups of people that are doing great damage to the world, something like the Islamic State. Perhaps we would like God to judge those people who are actively seeking the destruction of Christianity and our understanding of morality. Maybe we want God to judge the people on the opposite side of the political spectrum from us. Or the people who produce, sell, and use illegal drugs that bring great ruin and darkness to our world. Or maybe we just want God to punish the people who are bullying our kids. Or that really annoying coworker or boss. Maybe we don't want God to, like, kill them. But inconvenience them? Harm them? Just give them a little bit of... Just a little judgment, just a teensy bit, just enough to know that you don't like them and I'm better. And so we devalue their lives. We don't want them to be saved. And yet if all people are made in the image of God, then all people have a certain dignity, that we should value all human lives. John Calvin, one of the great theologians of the Reformation, wrote about this inclination that we don't like other people. He said it in this way. He said, you say that he is contemptible and he is worthless. But the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. You see all the worthless things about him. And God sees them too. But God also sees the image in him. God wants us to value the lives of all people, all fellow image bearers. So instead of looking at their despicable qualities, the ways they hurt, God wants us to see the value in their lives. Not to bypass their sin, not to ignore it completely. God will take care of that. And we can speak to it. 
but to see deep down there is the image there and their lives are of value. And so rather than devalue life, God calls us to value it. He calls us to be fruitful and to multiply and to not murder. We are to be life producers rather than life takers. Life valuers rather than life haters. That's the attitude we are to have, to value the lives of our fellow men, to take care of them, that each human life is valuable no matter how fallen. And yet as we look at this passage, interestingly mixed in here, we see a concern for the animal population. God now allows mankind to eat animals on one condition, that you not eat their blood. Okay, we'll try not to do that. And that's because the blood represented life. That there is a value to the lives of even the animal creatures. That just as we are to respect the lives of fellow people, we should respect the lives of animals. And that helps us to understand the really odd conclusion to Jonah. Where God's like, there are a whole bunch of people there and cattle. And did you notice how in chapter 3, the king of the Ninevites started covering the livestock in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a sign of mourning and repentance. Many of us have met cows before. And I don't think we would describe them as repentant in any circumstance. And yet, they are taking care of even the beasts in their city. And God tells Jonah, you are worried about this stupid little plant that was there for one day. And yet, there are countless numbers of livestock. Should I not care about them? If I kill all the Ninevites, who will take care of them? If I send fire and judgment, will they not burn? I care about all life. Why don't you? And so this points us to the rest of chapter 9, where God shows that he cares about all of creation. He makes a covenant And we expect verse 9. Verse 9, he says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and kids, and your offspring after you. And then verse 10 happens. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. God is making a covenant with birds and cows And lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. He loves them all. They're all included in this covenant. Since the flood affected every living thing, God says, my promise is for every living thing. It includes all the earth. And though men and women are uniquely image bearers and we are distinct and better than animals in that way, he still loves their lives. They're still part of his creation. And a major reason for God's care is because sin, our brokenness, has affected all of creation. The brokenness that humans brought into the world corrupted all things. And the Apostle Paul describes how creation is longing to be free from this corruption, this brokenness that they groan for redemption like a woman groans in the pain of childbirth. Apologies. Creation suffers because men and women sinned, and God knows this. And so he says, my covenant is with all of it, everything. 
and I promise to never again send a destructive flood. That's the content of the covenant, never again. He says it five times here, never again, that the pervasive wickedness of mankind that resulted in this judgment will never happen again. I will never judge the earth in this way again. And so there's a great implication given in chapter 8, verse 22, that the world can remain. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The world will go on despite our wickedness, that God will preserve the world, that though mankind is still wicked, another cataclysmic judgment against our earth does not need to be feared. As one commentator in Genesis writes, however irregular the human heart may be, there will be a regularity to the cycles of the world's. And so knowing that creation is going to be around a long time, space travel could be fun, I give space travel credit, but the world matters. The world's going to be around. One way we can reflect the image of God is to care for the world that he loves. God made it, he cares for it. He made us, we can care for it too. Now does this mean that we all need to be tree-hugging vegan members of our local PETA chapter? No, it does not. But it means we can care for the creation that God has made. Seeing the beauty of it and how we've broken a lot of it, we try to use it wisely, protect it when necessary, and uphold its goodness. Because we learn so much from creation. When you're out in the natural world and you're reading the Bible, you get a lot more. Jesus spoke in parables about the natural world, about mustard seeds. He made the bread multiply for people. He uses natural things. The poetry of the Psalms throughout the Bible use natural things. Psalm 19 says that the skies declare the glory of God. Abraham, when God promised him things, was told, look at the stars in the sky. Look at the sand on the seashore. And those helped him understand God's promises. Without the natural world, how can we understand the ways in which God has spoken to us in Scripture? It is an earthly book. We must know and care for the earth. See, God loves to use natural signs to convey his truths and his blessings. And we see a great example of this with the rainbow. It's the sign of the covenant. And so the rainbow is a memorial sign for God and for all creation. It comes out after the storm. It comes out to show them, hey, the rain stopped. It's not another flood. Some days, weeks, when it rains, it doesn't seem to ever stop. We do hope, like, okay, where's that rainbow? It's not going to keep flooding, right? We hope for that. It is God's sure sign. And yes, I am aware that rainbow is refracted light. I've read a children's book telling me that much. But can't God use natural things in the world for his purposes? Like water for baptism. Like bread and juice for communion. Rainbow is one of those words I've never really thought about a lot until I started thinking through the Bible. Rainbow is a menacing word. We think about it as like sunshine and butterflies and rainbows, but it is a frightening word. Rainbow is a compound word between rain and bow. 
And so really what it is, it is God's weapon, his bow and arrow with which he shoots rain down. That's the image of the rainbow. It is a weapon of judgment. And what does God do? He takes one of the most frightening images and he makes it one of the most beautiful. He sets it up in the sky, not pointing down at earth, but up at him, hanging it in a sense in the sky, saying, this will show you that war is not coming. Judgment is not coming through the flood. The rainbow is God's sign that he will show mercy and restraint when judgment is deserved. Because judgment is deserved. What's really unusual about this passage is verse 21. God give, of chapter 8, God gives a reason for never sending a flood again. And the reason, well, it's weird. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for, that is because, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The reason I'm never sending a flood again is because you are bad all the time. But that's the reason you sent the flood Right? And yet God knows sin will continue. And yet God promises to not punish the punishable. He puts his bow away when he could send another flood. He loves his creation too much to judge it again like that. But then, especially when you throw in the rainbow part, it makes God seem like a big old softy. It makes God seem like Okay, go play amongst yourselves. Everything's going to be fine. How can God be just if he doesn't punish what is evil and wicked? Doesn't it make him seem weak? Doesn't it make him seem powerless, like he won't hold to his principles like he needs to? We see a hint of why in the words before he makes that declaration in verse 21 that Noah made a sacrifice to God and God smelled the pleasing aroma and then promised to never again judge the earth. Must have been a really good smelling sacrifice. Bacon. (laughs) Bacon is unclean, so it wasn't bacon. It was something else, though. It wasn't Noah's sacrifice necessarily that pleased him so much. A future sacrifice is foreshadowed. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for the sins of the whole world is the only thing that can allow God to show mercy and restraint when judgment is deserved. That even more than the rainbow that is beautiful, the cross shows how divine mercy and restraint are possible when God must judge. That instead of judging everyone for their sins, it is possible to be forgiven in the sacrifice of Jesus. That he can atone for our sins. He takes the punishment. He is flooded for us with judgment so that we can be saved as Noah and his family were. He pays the punishment for what we deserve so that God can show us mercy. He gives us a fresh start. And yet, this isn't a fresh start like a new school year when you bomb the first test and, well, there goes the fresh start. It is not a clean slate that we are responsible for keeping clean. It is a better fresh start. It is a newness. See, the Apostle Paul writes that if anyone is saved in Christ, he or she is a new creation. 
completely new, saved, secure with salvation and eternal life. Not only that, but we are given a new identity. We are God's children, adopted into his family. And so as his children, we live with the fresh start. We live in this new identity, remembering the God who has given it to us. Remembering the God who has saved us and brought us out of the flood of wickedness that we found ourselves in and has saved us and set us on dry land and said, go, value the lives of others, worship who I am and what I've done for you, and care for the earth. That's what we are called to do. To live lives worshiping our God who is great and mighty and holy, who is both merciful and just. And has shown us that in the cross of Jesus Christ. We are to love one another knowing that we are sinners saved by grace. We did not keep a really great clean slate. Jesus washes it clean after every sin. And so we love others knowing that we too are sinners and God can save sinners. And we care for the earth knowing that God's promised salvation extends to the whole earth. That one day he will make all things new, a new heaven, a new earth, and everything will be restored. And we long for that day as Noah longed for the day to get off the boat. We long for the day when the doors will open and when God will say, here it is. Here is the complete, total, and new, fresh start. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks that you are merciful and just. That you are not some softy who just shows mercy and love all the time and, and throws out evil and wickedness and you, you don't worry about them. But God, you are completely just and you judge all things deserving of judgment. And yet in the beauty of the cross of Christ, we find the meeting of mercy and judgment. The greater rainbow the greater sign that your hostility towards us has ended because your judgment went to Jesus instead of us. And so, Lord, may we share that good news, the good news that there is hope in the coming judgment to be found in Jesus Christ. Would we believe in that? Would we trust it? Would we share it with others, valuing their lives so that they might hear this good news and be saved as well? And would we care for this earth that you have made and that you have made us to be stewards of? Lord, bless us that we may be a blessing to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.